Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com. Revelation 11, the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet, and we're in part two of Revelation 11. If you didn't get a chance to hear the first half of this message, uh, just to quickly review, we spent the majority of the previous teaching discussing the temple, uh, the measuring of the temple, the... uh, the purpose of the inner court compared to the outer court. And we made comparisons to the book of Ezekiel to give us an understanding of what this temple represents. And as we explained previously, I believe that this temple is not to be taken literally, no more than Ezekiel's temple was literally constructed, but I believe uh, consistent with the teachings in the book of Revelation that Revelation is actually teaching us uh, and and making comparisons and corollaries to other parts of Scripture. So um, we went through the New Testament and explained how we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the ecclesia that Jesus is building upon the foundation of himself, and that this spiritual temple is living and is growing so um, to me that reality is so much greater and and so much more important than the idea of having a literal temple rebuilt and and I understand that most people take things out of scripture and they interpret them literally the question is should we interpret them literally or are they symbolic in nature. And I have said throughout this study that it depends upon the context. Um, So it may very well be that people will take things literally and may even appear to see the literal fulfillment of things by looking in the news or by looking at current events. Uh, But I, I think that has the possibility of distracting us from the spiritual importance, the spiritual magnificence of what the Lord is doing, to always look at everything literally. If you look at the parables of Jesus, for example, and many of the teachings and things that he he conveyed to the people, he was speaking spiritually to them, but because they had a mindset of using logic and reason and interpreting things literally, they did not understand what he meant many times, including his disciples. So when, for example, and and there's many examples, but in John 6, for example, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And this bread that my father gives is my flesh that I give for the life of the world. 
And so the people became offended, and even the disciples struggled with this, and they said, well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> um, and you know, looking, looking on instances like that, we, we kind of chuckle, and we think how, how silly and how ignorant they were to take what he obviously intended in a spiritual manner and interpreted it literally. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, hmm, how can a man be born when he is old? Shall he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's like, really? <laughs> you, you are so... Uh, you're so stuck on the literal interpretation of things that you have no spiritual discernment or sensitivity or ability whatsoever. And I, I'm afraid that many of our religious friends would take the same approach to Scripture that the Jews took to everything Jesus said, and they would take it literally. And in taking everything literally, uh, they they completely miss the point spiritually. So in the same manner, I believe that this temple that it's referring to here um, represents the spiritual house of living stones. I don't believe that it's instructing the Jews to build a third temple. Uh, if a third temple is built, I think it will be built in rebellion unless uh, there is some acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Savior, which I don't see that happening. And so um, we discussed that in, in the previous part of this, in part one. And we discussed how Ezekiel had a, a vision that God gave him, and the timing of that vision and the purpose of measuring was to give Ezekiel a vision of a restored temple. And uh, it's interesting that the literal temple, you know, maybe they read that and they wanted to construct a literal temple when really the vision that Ezekiel had was of a, of a different kind of temple. That exact temple was not constructed. A temple was constructed, but not that temple. I believe that we are that temple and that that temple is the temple of the Holy Spirit and Scripture teaches that you and I are the temple, and we are constructed upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And this temple is living, it's growing, it's building with the increase of God, because it is living, because it is people. It is not about building a temple, a third temple, a fourth or a fifth temple, no more than the city in the book of Revelation is a literal city. If you take everything literal, then uh, you're going to miss the spiritual symbolism of the, and, and the prophetic nature of things. Now, where we can take things literally, we do take them literally. And so in a lot of the previous chapters in the book of Revelation, especially with the judgments upon the earth, many of these things appear to be uh, literal rather than symbolic. For example, the martyrs in Revelation 6, under the fifth seal, it says that 
there was an altar in the souls of all those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony were there, and they were crying out for judgment and for um, a vengeance, for vengeance on those who had martyred them. Well, I, I don't believe that is symbolic. That's got to be literal because that, that has a literal fulfillment. Um, so when, the, when it's obvious from the context that it's literal, then we interpret it literally. Um, but we can't apply that literalism to every aspect of Scripture. Otherwise, you would have Jesus being a lamb with horns and a sword coming out of his mouth. Obviously, that's symbolic. Obviously, that's not intended to be taken literally. So how do we know the difference? Well, we know it by prayer, by rightly dividing the word, by interpreting Scripture within the context of other Scriptures, as we have attempted to do. And... Um, and just in some cases, just using some common sense. But I think the most important way to approach the book of Revelation, and, and it's the way that I've been trying to convey to you, is that we don't come to Scripture. We don't come to any Scripture with a predetermined idea or a predetermined conclusion or a predetermined interpretation and then try to force Scripture to align with our view. Instead, we want to have an open mind, an open heart, and we come to Scripture and we allow Scripture to change us and change our views if our views need changing. And that's the humility with which we approach the Word of God. Uh, so it, as we pass on through Revelation 11 and endeavor to get through the last part of Revelation 11 tonight, we're going to discuss the two witnesses um, and, and go back and complete our train of thought regarding those two witnesses. We'll talk about Jerusalem being represented as Sodom and Egypt, uh, which is very interesting because uh, to, to refer to Jerusalem, which is considered the city of the great king, the great religious capital and center of religious and, and uh, Jewish activity in the time that Revelation was written, to refer to that holy city as Sodom and Egypt is about as sacrilegious as me to critique and to attack the institutional church today. Uh, we believe that, or many people believe that our church buildings are holy and that the church that Jesus is building is this institutional system, this religious system and organization of churches and denominations. And there is a great um, outcry whenever someone critiques or criticizes the church, quote unquote, as if you have done some sacrilegious thing or have committed some kind of blasphemy to suggest that a religion about Jesus has distracted us and has prevented us from entering into a really in-depth relationship with Jesus. And in, in fact, and I keep repeating this and will continue to repeat, that the single greatest distraction that I know of from an abiding 
spiritually mature relationship with Christ is the institutional church. It's the religion about Jesus that keeps getting in the way of a relationship with Jesus. So there's a, a, a history here where uh, we see in the book of Revelation that John is, is basically comparing Jerusalem, the, the, the holy city, um, the revered city, revered by Jews and, and still to this day, revered by many people as the, the holy city and, and the city of God. And yet here in the book of Revelation, it compares Jerusalem to Sodom and Egypt. So just as things are not now as they appear in those days, things were not as they appeared as well. So we look at the outward accoutrements of organized religion. In our day, it's it's the church. It could be the Catholic Church. There are the many thousands of denominations of the Protestant Church. It makes no difference. In the time of John, the outward accoutrements of organized religion of his day consisted of Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood and all the sacrifices and things that they did in obedience to the book of the law, to the law of Moses. And yet it was this Jerusalem that failed to recognize the Son of God, failed to recognize Jesus as Savior and Lord and King. And so Jesus, the Savior, the Lord and the King, who was rejected by the ones that he came to, says he, he came to his own and his own received him not. He says that this kingdom will be taken away from you and given to another nation who will bring forth the fruits thereof. And so meanwhile, the outward organized religion continued on, continued to persecute the followers of Jesus. To the extent that in the book of Revelation, we see John refers to this great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So it's a it's a revelation, an unveiling of the truth concerning organized religion. Quite a, a difference from the time when Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem and the disciples pointed out to the master of all the beautiful buildings and the great stonework and and all of the outward things of the religious system of their day and jesus said that these things none of these things will last all of these things will be destroyed and thrown down and so i see a parallel between organized religion in the day of jesus and organized religion in our day and we see this being referenced here in Revelation 11. So we'll look at that. In addition, we will look at the seventh trumpet, which is significant. We've been through the previous six trumpets now. And the seventh trumpet has been in, in, a, in a little bit of a delay in, in sounding. But uh, we, we have been told previously in Revelation 10 that when that seventh trumpet sounds, then, then the mystery of God will be finished. 
as he declared to his servants the prophets. We'll see that come to pass. And finally, after we get through these different portions of Scripture, we'll share the the different ways people have attempted to interpret this chapter. And I'll, I'll share with you uh, my thought on it. And again, to, to repeat, uh, I'm not asking you to believe my interpretation of things any more than anyone else, but I'm simply giving you what I believe to be accurate. And I try to be balanced in giving you how different people historically have interpreted things uh, and tell you my thoughts on, on the strengths and the weaknesses of those interpretations. But if, if anyone, including me, uh, comes to you and claims to have the final authority and the final answer for everything, then I think that they are merely uh, displaying their ignorance, and, and that would include me. Uh, so the, the point of these teachings is to get you to study and to pray and to, and to come to your own conclusion, but I do feel like that uh, the way I have approached it is to convey these truths from a Christ-centered perspective and also to give you uh, a reason to have hope for the future as opposed to the way the book of Revelation is commonly taught through the lens of fear and through the perspective of organized religion, which pits the book of Revelation, uh, positions it, presents it as God pouring out his wrath upon all of these awful sinners. Remember, the book of Revelation began with Jesus not going to sinners, but going to people who claim to be saints and confronting their hypocrisy. Uh, so nothing has changed. From the, from the time of Jesus confronting the unreality of the Jewish leaders, um, in the same way Jesus, his presence in the midst of us, uh, convicts and um, critiques and exposes our hypocrisy, which is why judgment begins in the house of God. And I believe the book of Revelation is demonstrating the preeminence of Christ over all things and also the the how the mystery of God will be fulfilled, not just in saving people who believe in him, but in saving the whole world. The world, the earth is the Lord's, it says, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He has not come to destroy life, but to save it, he says. And uh, so we see, given that perspective, again, very different from the religious perspective that is commonly taught, that God is out to destroy the devil because it's the devil who is trying to destroy the earth. It's the devil who deceives the nations, who seduces God's servants and leads them astray from the simplicity of Christ. He sends us to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to translate them out of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. And, um, this represents spiritual war, spiritual conflict. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Those people out in the world are not your problem. The problem is we have an adversary, the devil, who, as a roaring lion, walks around seeking whom he may devour. He's working in the children of disobedience to blind their minds from the truth, to make them, by nature, children of wrath, hostile to 
the word of God, hostile to the truth of Scripture. You're no better uh, than they. And it says that all of us at one time were by nature children of wrath, but it's because of God's mercy and grace that you are saved. And it's going to be because of God's mercy and grace that the rest of the world is going to be saved. Um, so we'll continue to explore these themes throughout the book of Revelation and um, try to try to at least give you an alternative way of, of looking at Scripture that's perhaps different than, than what you may have been exposed to for however many years you were a part of the religious system. So we come back to resume the discussion on the two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 3. It says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So, going back to our discussion on how do you interpret something literally or symbolically? How do you, how do you know the difference? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that these two witnesses actually, whoever they are and whoever you think they are, do you believe that they are like fire-breathing dragons? <laughs> Do you think that uh, fire actually comes out of their mouth and, and devours their enemies? Like a fire-breathing dragon? Unless you believe that they have this fire-breathing, fire-eating, dragon-like ability to uh, literally blow fire on people, I would take this symbolically. So if we take it symbolically then we have to look at what prophetic significance there may be here uh, rather than take it literally. So, but there's a clue, isn't it? It's like if, if, you, uh, if you see someone who looks like the Son of Man and, he, and suddenly it looks like a lamb and with horns and a sword coming out of his mouth, you realize this is symbolic language and it represents the Lord Jesus. In the same way, we see two Witnesses who are compared to olive trees, who are compared to lampstands. Uh, and we see that these lampstands actually are breathing fire out of their mouth. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that, that this is intended to be symbolic. So then the question becomes, if it is symbolic, what is it symbolic of? What does it represent? So that's my thought process as I go through and, and seek wisdom and understanding in these things. So again, resuming in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their, pro in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So let's consider, for purposes of understanding Revelation 11, if these are symbolic, the two witnesses, 
if they are symbolic, then I believe that they represent the overcomers that bear the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19.10, it says it's the truth concerning Jesus that inspires all prophecy. King James Version says it's the testimony of Jesus inspires uh, testimony, meaning the truth concerning Jesus, the testimony of Jesus. When witnesses give testimony, it is expected that they will testify truthfully, that they will be faithful witnesses, truthful witnesses. So here we have two witnesses, and they are prophesying, I believe. And as we continue on, I think Scripture will support that these two witnesses represent the overcomers, which bear the testimony of Jesus. And there's a reason for this, as we'll see when uh, when they are persecuted. But um, these two witnesses, we see that they are prophesying. In other words, they are bearing the testimony of Jesus, proclaiming the truth concerning Jesus. They're wearing sackcloth, which is like a burlap fabric. It's rough, it's uncomfortable, but it's the thing that the Jews would wear when they were in mourning or when they were... Um, uh, prophesying to the people to repent. They were in sackcloth and ashes, and they would tear their clothes, and they would uh, mourn and, and cry and pray and prophesy if they were uh, attempting to demonstrate their sorrow for their sins or for the sins of the, of the nation. They speak a fiery word, that fiery word, proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. In Jeremiah 5:14, God told Jeremiah, I will make my I will put my word in your mouth it will be like a fire and I will make these people wood. So it's the word of God in our mouth that becomes the fire. And this is the Again, more evidence of the symbolic nature of this, but also of the prophetic significance of these two witnesses. So these two witnesses, it says, are the two lampstands and two olive trees, which I believe correlate to Joshua and Zerubbabel during the rebuilding of the second temple. Now, when I say they correlate to Joshua and Zerubbabel, I'm not saying that they are those uh, people, but they correlate. There's a, a pattern. You see something discussed in the Old Testament. You see it referenced in the New Testament. And this is what John has in mind. This is what scripture is presenting. And this is, so you match one scene with another scene. We're going to, we've done that quite a bit already, but we'll also, as we continue in our study, we will find that Revelation repeats some of the same themes that have already been presented previously. For example, the beast rising up out of the sea and the beast rising up out of the land with many different heads and many different horns. These are correlating to previous visions that have been provided in the book of Daniel, for example. So what you do is you say, well, where else in Scripture does it refer to two olive trees or, or two lampstands standing before the God of the earth? Is there any other place in Scripture? And actually there is, and this is how we begin to 
get a better understanding of what these things are intended to represent. So I, I had said for homework that I wanted you to read Haggai and Zechariah, and specifically Haggai 2 and Zechariah 4. So if you turn over to Haggai right now and just keep your finger in Revelation, we'll go to Haggai chapter 2. Um, and again, these visions have to do with the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was in disrepair. The people had been carried away captive to Babylon. They were just beginning to escape Babylon and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So the significance of this period of time and how it correlates to what John is talking about seems to indicate that a spiritual rebuilding of the temple of God is taking place in the midst of great persecution. So we, we see the same pattern repeating itself in our time as it happened and, and as it occurred in the time of the Jews returning to Israel. It was a remnant of those. All of God's people were called out of Babylon. Many of them did not leave Babylon. Only a small remnant, a residue of the people of the Jews, left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple. And that's exactly, spiritually speaking, what we see happening in the book of Revelation. Uh, so in Haggai 2, it says in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word which I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as we lift that up and we lay it over the top of Revelation, we actually see what's what's happening in Revelation. We see that God is giving his word and he is encouraging the people not to despair and promising them that he is going to shake all the nations. He is going to fill the temple with his glory that the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the glory of the former. Now, if, you, if you've read through the, the end of the book of Revelation, you see the fulfillment of, of all of these promises, spiritually speaking. On the other hand, we don't see that even though they finished 
building a version of the temple, we don't see the literal fulfillment of, of these things here, where all the nations are going to come. So, I think there's a connection there that speaks to the end of days, the, the great purpose of God revealed in Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he will gather together in one all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, even in him. We see the fulfillment of that in the book of Revelation with New Jerusalem and this temple. Uh, it says that they have no need for a temple because the presence of the Lord himself and of the Lamb, they are the temple. And so we are that city, and God is living among his people, and we said that's the whole purpose of having a temple to begin with. It's not to go through and do religious exercises. It's not to go here preaching. The purpose of a temple is for God to inhabit his people, to be one with his people, to live with us, and we live with him. So the book of Revelation is the fulfillment of that. Um, Haggai 2 referring, re refers to the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land being shaken. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the, to the desire of all nations. And what is the desire of all nations? Well, we could speculate about what that is. In my Bible, it is capitalized, I suppose, because they wish to convey that Christ is the desire of all nations. But regardless of, of how you might interpret that, we see its fulfillment in the book of Revelation when the tree of life is there with healing. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And this river of life is flowing out from the city into all the world. It, it's a beautiful prophetic vision of what God is promising here. In this place, I will give peace. But all of the shaking that has to happen in the nations, we see that being fulfilled in the earlier parts of the book of Revelation. Why? Because there is a spiritual force in this earth that does not want Christ to have the preeminence. And so that sets us up for conflict. So, I, I wanted to point out Haggai 2, but now I want to point out Zechariah 4, which is interesting because it is, it is written in, in the same context as Haggai. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. Now, Zerubbabel is the, is the governor, the political or the civil leader. Joshua, the high priest, represents the spiritual leadership. So in Zechariah chapter 4, and so we're talking about the same two people as Haggai was talking about. But in Zechariah 4, it says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, 
Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, all of this is very interesting. Uh, the, the point of, of me revealing this and sharing this with you is to illustrate the connection between this and the two witnesses. So let's look at some of the comparisons here on the screen. We saw the prophetic promise to the civil authority, which is Zerubbabel, the governor, to Joshua, the spiritual authority, the high priest, and to a remnant of the people, those who had escaped from Babylon. They are there to rebuild the temple, and God promises that he will fill the temple with his glory and that he will shake all the nations, and God will draw all of those nations to that temple and give them peace. Well, just look at how those promises find their fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Overcomers are described as kings and priests of our God. Well, in the very in the very beginning, I think it's Revelation 4 or Revelation 5, the elders who represent the overcomers are singing praise to God and says that you have made us kings and priests and we will reign on earth. So Zerubbabel represents the king or the political ruler. In this case, he's a governor. He's a governor. He can't be a king because Israel has not been restored as a kingdom. But he represents the civil authority or the government. Joshua represents the spiritual government. Zerubbabel represents the civil government. The fulfillment for us in Revelation is that the overcomers are kings and priests who will reign. The two lampstands, you notice in if you read in Zechariah that it's two olive trees and one lampstand. And the interesting thing about this vision is that the light does not go out because it is the lampstands are being fueled with olive oil from these trees. It's like a perpetual light, a perpetual shining forth that Unlike the priests who had to go in and, and trim the lamps and refill the oil to keep it going, this vision that the Lord gives to Zechariah is of a lampstand that represents the infinite supply of the Lord. It doesn't require priests to come and, and fill it up. Instead, these these candles, the lampstand, the light that comes forth is being fueled directly by these two olive trees on either side. doesn't require a priest to come and to make sure that the light keeps going because it is the Lord himself who is going to ensure 
the shining forth of the light and the oil needed to fuel that light and that flame. And that's what Zechariah 4 is referring to. When you see this, what are you looking at? He says, I don't know. What does it mean? And the Lord says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So this, the fact that there are two lampstands in the book of Revelation, I believe represents a double portion of that spirit. It's the latter glory is greater than the former glory. We don't want to go back to Israel. We don't want to go back to the days of the temple and the days of the sacrifices, the days of following Moses and being disciples of Moses and getting all into the different religious ceremonies and interpretations of how they did things. The former glory is not going to be greater than the last, the latter glory. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant. If the old covenant was sufficient, it says in Hebrews, there would be no need for a new one. But the fact is the old was not sufficient, not because there was anything wrong with it. The law is good and holy and pure, Paul says. The problem is you and I, we are the problem. People are the problem. And so that's why God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to put my spirit within you and write my law upon your hearts so that you will follow me. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so this, this is the representation, I believe, of the new, new, the new covenant, the power of that Holy Spirit who is fueling our testimony so that we can be the light of the world and send forth a clear testimony of the truth concerning Jesus. Two olive trees, I've said, represent the infinite supply of oil for the lamp that is never extinguished. Religion has to have priests and, and supporters and things to keep all the machinery running. And here we see that the Spirit of the Lord is well able to maintain this testimony of Jesus, not by the might of an organization, not by the power of people, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. Now you see that these two witnesses are prophesying in the book of Revelation. They are prophesying in the midst of a rebellious religious city. They're not prophesying in Sodom. They're not prophesying in some backward alien nation. They are prophesying in the middle of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the holy city, supposed to be the city of the great king. Bless those who bless her and, and precious are her stones and precious are her dust. And you see how Jerusalem throughout the old covenant is revered and is prayed for, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so um, even today, many Christians uh, in the, w without a full understanding of what they're doing, but merely because they've been told that they should, they love Jerusalem, pray for Jerusalem. And on, on, in a certain sense, that's uh, certainly understandable and commendable. I, I, 
I love Jerusalem and I support Israel. But I'm not I don't love Jerusalem and support Israel because some preacher on television told me that I should. I love Israel and I love the Jewish people because I want to see them saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. But there is a difference between that and between the deception that is being uh, sent forth today, and in particular coming from Christian leaders and Christian preachers who are trying to forge an alliance with Israel that is not based on Christ. It's based on something else. And for that reason, uh, I don't support the organized effort by churchianity to try and link arms with Israel because they don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. I just point out and would note for you that these two witnesses that represent the testimony of Jesus, that they are prophesying in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of a rebellious religious city. I'm telling you, the the world is not your problem. It is a problem, but it is not the world that you have so much to be concerned with as it is the religious world, the religious system, the the organized religion of our day. So it's interesting that these witnesses are prophesying in the midst of a religious city and actually the religious capital of Israel. And what we're going to see in the chapters to come is the book of Revelation links Babylon to Jerusalem and that this Babylon is going to be destroyed and in its place a new Jerusalem is established. By new Jerusalem it does not mean rebuilding the old. But this new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven not rising up from the earth. And I guess that kind of summarizes my reservation with people who are trying to rebuild the temple, support the rebuilding or the rising up of Jerusalem from the earth when it is the new Jerusalem that scripture says is the mother of us all, not the old Jerusalem. It's not rebuilding the old Jerusalem or seeing the old temple rising up from the ashes of the earth. It is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And so we'll talk about that new Jerusalem as we move further on into our study. But let's go back to Revelation 4. I'm sorry, Revelation 11. I say we'll talk about New Jerusalem quite a bit, and we will. Because once again, there's another example of do we interpret something literally or something symbolically. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that New Jerusalem is more about the people being built than it is about a city being built. (laughs) But that that might be more than we can handle at this point. So let's return to Revelation 11. And resume reading in verse 7. It says, When 
referring back to the two witnesses, now these two witnesses are going to be killed. And so in Revelation 11, 7, it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So again, we have evidence here that shows that these are prophets. They're not just preachers. They're not revival preachers. They're not pastors, but they are prophets. So here we have the first mention of the beast, don't we? The first mention of the beast is here in Revelation 11. And what is this beast doing? It says that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against these two witnesses, these two prophets, will overcome them and will kill them. Uh, so this beast and how it came to be, I mean, we have a, a hint here that it ascends out of the bottomless pit, but we're going to learn quite a bit more about the beast. It's going to be explained uh, in more detail in the chapters to come. Uh, but we should not be surprised that this beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit and makes war against them is going to overcome them and kill them. That is to say that if, if these witnesses represent the prophetic word, the testimony of Jesus, the overcomers, then it means that temporarily, at least, they are going to be destroyed. The testimony of Jesus will essentially cease to exist. You say, how can that be? Well, in, in Daniel 7, for example, it talks about the power of the holy people being broken by this beast, by this antichrist figure. In Revelation 13, 7, where it gives us more detail about this beast, it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So this simply means that at least for a period of time at the testimony of Jesus the truth concerning Jesus will cease from the earth. And at least for a short time, it will look as though the beast has won. It will look like the remnant has been destroyed. Thankfully, as we're going to see, these two witnesses are, are raised from the dead. It will be a miraculous resurrection because the beast is not going to win in the long term, but it will look like the beast has won in the short term. 
But spiritually speaking, Scripture says, this city is called Sodom and Egypt. Well, we immediately can recognize those terms. Sodom is a city. Egypt is not a city. It's a nation, which is interesting that a whole city would be called Egypt. But what is really interesting to me is that Jerusalem is supposed to be a holy city. It's supposed to be the place where the temple of God is, the place where the presence of God is. And yet this city spiritually is called Sodom, Scripture says. We know that Sodom was destroyed for their great wickedness. Their wickedness rose up to heaven, and then God had to take action to destroy them for their great wickedness. Mostly for their sexual perversion and sexual immorality. And we're going to see themes of that as we study Revelation further and look into the, the harlot. So there's that. And then there is the description of this city being called Egypt. And we know that Egypt is the nation from which God initially called out and delivered his people, the Hebrews, who would become Israel. So spiritually, it says, this city where the prophets are killed, where, where they are preaching and proclaiming the truth concerning Jesus and where they are killed, spiritually, this city is called Sodom and Egypt. where also it clarifies our Lord was crucified. And so we know beyond a shadow of a shadow of a doubt that this great city is spiritual, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Does that make sense to you so far? So this city is where Christ was crucified. That's Jerusalem. I believe because we're taking this portion symbolically, and I take it symbolically based on everything following after, not necessarily what's happening here, but on how everything is explained later. And I also don't think that it is limited to the end times, but I think it has been going on for for a long time, ever since the Ecclesia was born in the book of Acts. There has been this religious spirit fueled by the beast that has rejected and made war against the testimony of Jesus and has tried to kill the prophets. So as we go back in uh, verse 11 of Revelation 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, 
and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So we see that for three and a half days, which could represent the 42 months, could represent three and a half years, 42 months, refer to earlier time, times and half a time that Daniel refers to. But during this period of time, the testimony of Jesus, the prophetic witness, ceases to exist, or at least it ceases, it is silent. It, it has been silenced. But then it will be restored. So then in verse 15 of Revelation 11, we come to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So immediately after these things, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So the seventh trumpet, as we saw previously in Revelation 10, uh, signals that the mystery of God is finished. Although there is more to the vision that, we, that will be revealed, because as we go through, we're going to see more details being filled in. It's almost as if, as I said last time, it's almost as if John comes to the end of this vision and begins to ask questions. How can these things be? What do these things mean? Who is the beast? Why is the beast fighting against the two witnesses? And how is the beast able to kill those two witnesses? We're going to get the answers to those questions. But we know from Revelation 10 that when this seventh trumpet sounds, that that that's it. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, that the mystery of God is completed. So even though Revelation continues from, a, from the perspective of a timeline, the seventh, trumpet, the, the seventh trumpet signals the end, the completion of the mystery of God. The elders in their song of worship they reference things that we will not see until later on. They reference the time of the dead, that they should be judged. The time where the servants and prophets will be rewarded. And so we know that 
that this will happen, but not until later on, which means that there is a great, what we'll call a parenthetical section that we have to study before we get to the judgment of the dead. So, But that kind of gives us a preview of what to expect, what's going to happen, and then we go into this parenthetical explanation that's happening in chapters 12 through 18. By parenthetical, I mean that it's not linear. It's not chapter 11 and then these things happen in chapter 12. Chapter 11 represents the end. And it stops just short of the judgment and the reward of the righteous happening in Revelation 19. That's where the story resumes. Therefore, Revelation 12 through 18 represents a parenthetical section. It's where we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge. We're going to have some questions answered. Some of the things that we've already covered will be elaborated upon, especially the spiritual war surrounding the testimony of Jesus, the identity of the beasts, God's judgment upon the beast, God's judgment upon Babylon. And so all of these things need to be considered. So you, you, you should look at chapters 12 through 18 as explanatory, not as part of the timeline, but we're going to, to pause that timeline and then we're going to go back through Revelation 12 through 18 and discuss and elaborate upon some of the things that were declared earlier on in this book. But we do see that the temple in heaven is opened and this, as we have said before in the Feast of Israel's the, uh, the, the feasts of Israel in that message where we saw how things were progressing along according to the seven feasts of Israel that after the feast of trumpets there is the day of atonement or Yom Kippur and so that is alluded to here with the temple of God opened in heaven the ark of his covenant was seen that represents the opening of the holy of holies which occurred on the Day of Atonement, and it also resumes in Revelation 15, 5, where it says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And so we're going to resume the timeline from there and discuss the seven bowls of judgment upon the beast. The other thing that's interesting, and I've brought this out before, is the very last part of verse 18, that the elders are praising God because it is time to destroy those who destroy the earth. And on that basis, that's why I say that when James and John, for example, wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans for not receiving them, Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, you don't know what 
manner of spirit you are of. Because the Son of Man has not come to destroy life, but to save lives. It is our adversary, the devil, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says. But I have come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. And I believe that promise he is making to all people. It says that God desires that all would be saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. That he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the the story of the book of Revelation is not the story of God destroying the earth. It's the story of God saving the earth and saving man from destroying himself. And also the story of how God is going to destroy the devil who destroys the earth. He will destroy the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Man and the devil are responsible for all of the destruction in the earth. And so we may not be able to fathom that, but the elders here from the perspective of heaven, they can fathom it and they can see it and they understand that God's wrath and his anger and his power is being directed to destroy those who are trying to destroy the earth. And that will ultimately represent judgment being poured out upon the beast, upon his kingdom, upon the false prophet, upon the dragon, the devil, and Satan. And what do you know? As soon as God's judgment is poured out upon these spiritual adversaries, we have the millennial reign of Christ. Why do you suppose that is? (laughs) Because for this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the devil. Not to destroy people, but to save people. To destroy the works of the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He came to set the captives free. And to do that completely and fully, it's going to require binding the devil. So all of those themes will be elaborated upon in the parenthetical sections that we are going to study through the rest of the book of Revelation. Quickly, as we close different interpretations, the preterist interpretation says that everything happening in Revelation 11 is is referencing the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So they take the city literally. It's literal Jerusalem, the destruction of this city, the destruction of the two witnesses. Of course, they find two witnesses that uh, that prophesied and preached during that period of history and so they make all the pieces fit from a preterist perspective the historicist perspective generally puts revelation 11 somewhere around the time of the reformation i I guess one witness is martin luther and the other is is uh, whoever the contemporary of martin luther is and so when they're 
their timeline of events, this falls in about the, the period of Reformation. The Futurist interpretation sees these tribulation judgments happening on a literal Jerusalem after the literal rebuilding of a third temple. Now, my view is a, is a would be the hybrid interpretation. Let's say this does refer to the fall of Jerusalem in, in A.D. 70. Does it not mean that it can't be repeated? Does it not mean that even if it does refer to this, that it also refers to a symbolic or a prophetic illustration of what's happening in the spiritual realm? In, in this approach, in my view, God's judgment on Jerusalem foreshadows his judgment on the house of God, so-called. In other words, it's the Christian religious system. Just as the Jews believed that they were God's chosen people, and therefore uh, God would bless them even though they rejected the Son of God and the Word of God, there's a Christian religious system today that cries out, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, but he doesn't know who they are. So that system, that religious system, is going to be seduced and deceived by the beast, and I think there is evidence to suggest that Babylon, that we will study in the subsequent chapters of Revelation, represents Jerusalem. And because it represents Jerusalem, it represents the organized religion of that day, which means, prophetically speaking, it represents organized religion in general, and specifically, the Christian religion of our time. That religious system about Jesus that actually leads people astray from a relationship with Jesus. So we'll demonstrate these things and connect these dots as we go through the parenthetical chapters to come, Revelation 12 through 18. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com.